0: Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime, having this conversation with Dr. Michael Yellowbird around um, really talking and digging into the ways in which indigenous folks um, across the globe, really, I think, um, Michael, have had uh, a certain set of experiences that is uh, not often acknowledged or dealt with or processed uh, with the larger uh, collective and that that shows up in a variety of ways. And also, what can we do now? And what's appropriate so um this is for that international trauma association that i was talking about and um and i guess if you want to give a little bit of background as to who you are and what you are doing or about uh in terms of your professional work and also maybe some of your um personal background there um, that might be a nice way for people to just that are set up and and locate you so I can put this in context for the article. I know what it is, obviously, because I know you, sure. but um but just for the purposes of this.
1: Okay. Uh, well, good morning. Um, um, my name is Michael Yellowbeard. I am uh, Dean and professor of the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Manitoba in Canada. Um, my background uh, is is in social work. I've done a lot of work in social work and and uh, Uh, more specifically in health uh, around indigenous people so i've spent a lot of time of uh, examining um, health and well-being among indigenous people um, particularly through the lenses of of, uh, colonization and decolonization so um, um, i've made most of my um, academic career on on looking at um, those particular paradigms and and frames and how to, to use them as analytical sort of measures to kind of determine you know uh, how indigenous people have fared in in uh, you know the evolution since ever since they've had contact with um outsiders uh, you know throughout the world so that's kind of really what i've been doing a lot of my research um, i'm actually arikara and hidadza uh, two tribal groups from uh what is now north dakota from the fort berthold reservation i um grew up there uh, for a good part of my life when I was was young and then I traveled quite a bit um, and, uh, at different universities. And uh, I come from a family of 15 in a community that's uh, very much a collectivist community. Uh, so our our people were uh, hunter-gatherers slash traditional horticulturalists uh, who were part of this really huge trade network uh, prior to uh, uh, European uh, colonization in the United States. So. It's interesting because a lot of people don't know this, that we had these amazing trade routes in different parts of Turtle Island, uh, you know, North America, uh, actually extending all the way down to South America. So if Mm. if people examine that today, they'll see that, you know, at one time there were hunter-gatherer groups, uh, horticultural groups, confederacies, empires, uh, you know, um, and and, uh, no pastoral people uh, that we know of. But all kinds of dynamic groups that moved across Turtle Island, trading uh, goods, uh, you know, intermarrying, uh, exchanging DNA, um, um, changing, exchanging ideas, spirituality and marking all of Turtle Island with really a lot of symbols, uh, petroglyphs, uh, you know, rock carvings, um, um, uh, uh, symbols uh, in the ground, like great big medicine wheels or in rocks, those kinds of things. So. Um, I'm really interested in that kind of work too, as well, to kind of see how we interacted and how we uh, 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 involved ourselves with one another across across time. And, and time's getting more and more extensive if you look at the archaeological record here of how long people have been here. Indigenous people say, well, we've been here since time immemorial. We don't know how long we've been here, but always have been here. But what's really interesting is that as is we, is we look further and further on the uh, the time you know we get to understand that there were many innovations and, and things that people did while they were here that were that hadn't been uh, shown up in Europe or in Asia or any other places so or some things that did simultaneously uh, uh happen here in this part of the world so i'm i'm part of those kinds of groups that you know i have got the genetic background that sort of is incorporated through all these different groups so i'm i'm very interested in that and very interested in in what's happened to indigenous people uh, Um, at the beginning of the time that, you know, there is some kind of recorded history and then archaeological uh, history. uh, And then of course uh, what happened to indigenous people after contact with Europeans. So that's, those are areas I'm very interested in.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Um, After contact, (laughs) putting it lightly, putting it mildly. Um, So, I guess where we are now, it's the summer of 2020, we're in the middle of the pandemic still, and we're in the middle of what is, um, you know, sort of, I guess, a protest movement of Black Lives Matter, you know, protest movement, particularly here in the United States, but also I think a call to, you know, sort of interrogation around these systems, these colonialist systems and their legacies of of whiteness or white body supremacy or whatever term you want to use around that oppressive uh, systemic nature of extraction and, and not regeneration and that sort of more Balanced way of being um, that we know is intuitive to to, to what you just described, to just the indigenous cultures that you just described. So at, at this time, when issues of racial violence and discrimination are being actively debated in our mainstream media, how does one effectively work with work with indigenous peoples? Whether it's is there is I mean, there's probably not just one answer, but how at this time does one consider being more effective in working with indigenous people? Um, at this time, is there anything specific or different because of the pandemic or are there things that are just continuing that we need to do differently?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's it's kind of both. I think there are things that people can specifically do to uh, begin to understand who indigenous people are. I think that's the, I mean, it depends really where you are in the world though, first of all, the United yeah. States, the United States is one of those, you know, that has a very low indigenous you know quotient i mean they just don't understand indigenous people down in the united states it's uh it's it's a country that has all kinds of different political you know uh sways from, from here and there but in, in uh you know i i think and so that's that's the more difficult thing is, is that the u.s really has not had its own reckoning it really hasn't had you know um uh, you know a very very in-depth look at its at, at its um history I mean, you're dealing with a settler colonial history that, you know, is based upon genocide and rape and torture and dispossession and theft, you know, of, you know, billions of acres of land and riverways and those kinds of things. So I think that's the first thing uh, Americans really need to do. In Canada, that's happened. It's still happening in Canada. It's Mm -hmm. it's happening in Australia and New Zealand. It's happening in different parts of the world with indigenous people. Uh, In Norway and Finland, those kinds of conversations have been going on. Mm. The U.S. somehow, you know, just doesn't look beyond its own borders. So yeah. it doesn't see that going on. Uh, the U.S., like, like U.S., like Canada, like New Zealand and Australia, were the four countries were the last four countries to sign on to, UNDRIP, which was the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, because mm. you know they had committed so many crimes against Indigenous people, crimes of humanity, um, you know, by, by taking kids, uh, kids away. You know, by stealing land, by uh, you know, um, by appropriating you know all these things from Indigenous people, and and basically that's what settler colonialism is all about. It's about wiping them out and taking you know, it's like the elimination of the native. is what it's really about. So it hasn't really had its reckoning. You know, people there really hasn't been like truth, uh, uh, truth uh, and reconciliation commissions in the United States with Indigenous people. That's kind of happening now, I think, with Black Lives Matter. I, I'm not sure. Uh, if there is enough truth and reconciliation there yet, it's just kind of a baby movement right now, as I see it, which is really good. I think it's really, it's kind of, it's breaking out and it's, it's forcing people to, uh, to begin to examine, you know, uh, all these uh, Confederate generals, all these symbols and all these markers uh, of, um, uh, you know, of uh, white supremacy is really what it's doing. And it's very uncomfortable, I think, for people. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, it's like, people are more comfortable with with anti racism than they are examining their own white supremacy that's that's pretty clear
0: that's can pretty you clear. can you elaborate on that people are more comfortable with anti racism work than they are with examining their own white supremacy i find that fascinating and true and i know what you mean but yeah. i would so, like you to elaborate
1: yeah so anti racism is like you know we could we can speak out against it that's wrong you know uh, that's not about me, it's about someone over there from, you know, who has a Confederate flag or whatever. It's, it's, that's how we see racism. It's like, you know, we don't see our own position as being racist. We don't see our own, you know, a privilege in society as being white supremacy or white nationalism, right? And, 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 and you know, it's all, the, it's all the, uh, the whites, right? All the white stuff, right? So if you got the privilege, you know, I got white privilege so I can go out and I can stand on a protest line against racism, right? But I'm not going to do a damn thing about, you know, helping, uh, you know, um, improve the lives of people in the inner city or, or, uh, you know, uh, change, you know, the structure to from, you know, to uh, eliminate structural or systemic racism. Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to rebel against any things like that. I'm going to I'm going to do things that are easy because I've got that privilege. And I think that's what it is. It's anti-racism is like, well, I mean, I can I can talk about it. I can even, you know, say I'm against it. I can wear a T-shirt, you know, and I can do all these things. But I, you know, it's that's I'm not going to examine myself how I'm part of the system, mm-hmm. how I perpetuate the system, you know, by paying taxes to the police, you know, that go out there, and 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 destroy these communities, you know, and murder these people, right? I think that's different. It's very different, you know, because white supremacy, white nationalism, you know, uh, we we can't get to that because of you know something called white fragility, right? It's like people are so fragile about, you know, their, about their place and, and about anything that challenges their privilege, right? That's the idea is like, I mean, that's why right now, it's, it's, it's easier, I mean, it's difficult, but it's easier now to, to bring down Confederate generals, you know, to, to bring those down because of you know, what they did. I mean, they, they fought this war to maintain slavery so people are doing that but it's much more difficult i think for those of us to go out there and to change to demand change in the curriculum say i'm not sending my kids to school until you change that damn curriculum right i'm not going to do that see
0: that that in itself is changing meaning that's it's more accurate to actually reflect the history of this country in terms of enslavement and genocide
1: right exactly and to teach kids the truth right i'm not going to do that right that's my privilege right but I can go out there and say, well, I'm, I'm, I want people to have higher wages. I want them not to be beaten by the police. But systemically, I'm not going to do a damn thing. Right? I'm not going to. I'm going to send my kids to school. I'm not going to, you know, um, um, you know, um, I'm going to continue on, you know, with all these different kinds of you know, things that are part of the system. So I think that's the difference is that people are, are easily kind of say I can be anti-racist, anti-racist, but I cannot look at my own white supremacy. Right. Mm. too threatening. I don't want to look at it
0: so. Yeah. And so um, I appreciate that. It's the self-interrogation. I, I just say interrogating whiteness. That's sort of the way, shorthand, that I've used um, yeah. to describe it. And interrogating whiteness and the, the way in which it shows up in me um, as a person is, is, is what I need to be looking at if I am a white-bodied or a light-skinned, privileged, passing person that has inherited a certain degree of privilege that's not afforded to others. Um, given all of what you say, um, in terms of the personal piece, uh, how then does one effectively work with indigenous communities? As you said, all across the world, there are other countries doing different things where I'm in the United States, you're in Canada, we are on Turtle Island, North America. However, there are other communities across the world that are, um, and have done a better job in terms of reconciling or reckoning, although there's still work to be done and is being done. Um, How does one work clinically, perhaps, with Indigenous people during this time in a way that's effective psychotherapeutically, or do we not use Western techniques um, as we know them, if you will, and is there a better way that is perhaps more uh, collectivist-based?
1: You know, I, I, that's a good question. Thanks for the question. Yes I, I, I really have been I mean, I've trained a lot of clinical social workers. I've trained a lot of social workers by day. Uh, I'm not a clinical social worker, but I, you know you kind of get them through the process and then they get their clinical training. But for me, I, I'm, I'm really glad you raised that because I think clinical work, you know, I think, is important work. Don't get me wrong. I think it has its place. But as we look at indigenous people around the world, We have come to understand, you know, through a lot of cultural neuroscience that these are collectivist cultures. Culture evolves with our genetics, right? Our our genetic profiles. So that we have particular genetic variants that help us maintain our sense of equilibrium and well-being, right? But it has to be in a cultural context. What I mean by that is that you know, some people are going to do so much better in in a um, in in a community therapy or group big group therapy, right? If you're going to have any kind of therapy, they're going to do much better, and they're going to and and for Indigenous people, that that looks to me to kind of be what what's happening now is that we're kind of moving in that slowly moving in that direction to understand how important it is for people to be in the company of others in order to heal. Talking about you know. What's wrong, I think, is is kind of, it's a colonized, it's really a kind of a colonized kind of a way to do that. I mean, we can talk about that for a while, but you have to get back to the strength of the, of the of the society. What are what are the what are the protective factors in the society that make people stronger and make them resilient, right? So in this in times like this, I think therapeutic approaches are are ones that I've seen like three case studies that I've seen. Um, uh, around the world, one in australia i, I, I can 't recall the particular um, all the particulars of it, but uh, uh, this one Aboriginal woman um, who had almost single handedly brought down suicide on her own by going back to uh, what she called the i think the care factor mm-hmm. right she, she didn't have, she doesn 't have a degree she 's not a clinical psychologist, no western training, but essentially what she did you know uh, and you can find this uh, uh, Wish I had in front of me, uh, what she did is that she got sick and tired of seeing people in her community die. They had like per capita, the highest rates of suicide in the world. And then um, and you can find this on the web, right? Mm-hmm. So she, she started spending time with people when, when, when people were really, you know, at that point of ideation. She would go spend time with them, sit with them and just be with them, you know, for, for hours or, or stay overnight with them and just sit there while they fell asleep or whatever she did. And then um, and that was the care factor. And then as other older women in the village started seeing that, that's what they started to do. Yeah. So when they were all going out and they were like patrolling, and when someone when they would say someone's feeling really bad or down, they would go. They would sit with them. So it wasn't just a five-minute talk or an hour talk time's up kind of thing. They would spend the whole day with the person, you know, maybe washing dishes, sweeping floors, sitting with them, telling them stories while they fell asleep. All those things. You know, and, 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 and,
0: and even as you're saying that I'm getting choked up because it's just so powerful what you're saying, you know, it's just that it's so real, like a human needs care and to feel not alone and to feel like someone is actually pausing and noticing and meeting you in that space is really powerful.
1: Yeah. And and I think that's, that's what uh, people were picking up on, right? They're picking up on
0: yeah. this,
1: this genuine idea that someone cares about me.
0: Yeah. Time with me. God forbid. It's not just a job. They actually care.
1: Yeah. And so that was one case study that, and, and this woman goes around, and talks about that now, like, right. It's, it's, it's like, you don't need all these degrees. You don't need advanced training to go to, to do that. You, you basically go back to, you know, the tradition of that particular cultural group, which is to like, this is, this is what we do. You know, we, we network with each other. We care for one another.
0: That itself,
1: yeah, yeah, That in itself is a very collectivist approach to life. It's not an individualistic approach to life, and 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 I would I would dare say that if you went in you took a swab of those folks, you'd find out that they had you know a genetic variant you know that was was called a serotonin transporter uh, um, um, gene, right? STG. That you know serotonin you know would rise and dopamine levels rise when you have that kind of close contact when people care about you Mm. right and it reinforces that so all you have to do then after a while is see these people in the community see the smile you feel their energy you see that they're doing their work and then it sort of Mm. blends into your own activity right Mm. and after a while you get so good at it that you all you know and there's another part of the brain that activates it's the insula right which is the part of the brain that that really is looking at what we call social and emotional intelligence you you begin to see the social needs that people have Mm -hmm. and where they are mentally just by looking at a person yeah right and you get used to that after thousands and thousands and thousands of years so that even before you know someone even begins to tip the other way you're there yeah to to balance them right yeah kind of the plate that's tipping you're balancing them before right. it even starts to go off the rocker or, or or slide off, right? That's how cultures survive. Yeah,
0: beautiful.
1: Right? That's how cultures survive. So that was in Australia. There's another one that was in Alkali Lake in British Columbia. Very similar. Uh, again, another indigenous group. Uh, they didn't they didn't have people do clinical work and sit down, you know, with folks. And 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 what happened was that there was a lot of alcohol in this community. A lot, you know, a lot of alcohol. Even to the, down to the little kids who were drinking you know, bottles of alcohol when parents got drunk and they had nothing to eat, so they would drink alcohol at the table. Mm-hmm. Parents, you know, uh, one family got, you know, it all started when a little girl didn't want to stay with her mother anymore. She wanted to stay with her grandmother. The mother was upset. Then she told the father, I'm going to stop drinking and you've got to stop drinking. So they did. And then they start going on to the community. And when they went out to the community, that's exactly what they did. They used this very collectivist community approach. They didn't sit down and say, you know, tell me about your historical trauma. Tell me about, you know, why you, you know, how you feel that you don't have a job. What they did is they start saying, you know, we all have to get out of this, you know, mess together. And so what they started to do is they started to kind of clean out, you know, some of the the problems. One was a priest that was uh, an alcoholic, you know, in, in, in the community. They, they chased him out. They got rid of him. Yeah. And there were bootleggers coming into the community. They stopped that. Yeah. And pretty soon they, they, they all began working together. You know, as a collect- they started caring. It's a care factor again. Right. right. They all were caring about each other. And then they took the next level where they started to going, going back to indigenous ceremony. Mm. And that's the healing that, you know, sweat lodges and pipe ceremonies and all the ceremonies that, that they had lost during the period of colonization. Right. They began to go back to these things that, you know, were right for them, that were part of who they were, that, you know, even the smell of tobacco or sage has a genetic olfactory response in the brain. And right. you know, as soon as you smell that, you know, it, it sets you know into motion something that's sacred and healing in the body. Yeah. Well, how is that? Well, it's, you know, people have done that for generations and generations and generations and generations. So it's not like blood memory or anything like that, like people talk about what it really is is really there's a genetic system and an olfactory system set up to understand, you know, that's a dangerous smell, that's a that's a friendly smell. Right. A helpful smell, that's a spiritual smell, whatever it is. We have that, you know, capacity. And because indigenous people there in that part of the world have been doing it for such a long period of time, making music, whatever those kinds of things are, then, you know, it's easy, it was easy for them to transition back into that space where then they begin to... You know, uh, hit their set point again. Yeah, reclaim, reset their genetics, their genetic epigenetic expression, and and, then I think once they were able to do that, you know, they they uh, the community healed, and that that's that's an excellent case study. So there there are more of these that that have happened. I have never seen one, and I'm not saying there isn't one, but I've never seen one where you have individual, you know, Western clinical healing that's healed a whole community. Mm. It may heal a few people. Right. But you, you take those people and you put them back into that same place where there's a lot of sickness and disease, you know, their, you know, their chances of maintaining their, their, their uh, homeostasis and, and their well-being are going to be greatly diminished. Yeah. This is why for indigenous people, um, you know, collectivist healing, that kind of thing, especially during times like this with COVID is so important. But also, you know, that's, a, it's also a danger too, because you can't get into that close proximity. Mm. Uh, you know with one another you know because of the spread of COVID so it's difficult so it may be even harder on people more than that because a lot of people want to get together they want to feast together they want to dance together they want to sing together all these things that collectively they do right Uh, that were outlawed by colonization and now they've sort of gotten back and now they kind of have to be very careful about doing that to
0: watch the spread of COVID so right yeah. Balancing that that healing property and that, re, you know, that the reclamation of the, you know, mutual celebration uh, can sure. bring and, you know, the co-regulation with the nervous system and the group and all of these things that we know um, neuroscientifically and with, you know, our, our vagal, you know, systems and all of that along sure. with um, what's actually prudent in um, a time of COVID and, and how to do that. I know one of the things that I've offered to people um, over the last few months uh, has been a Zoom dance party where I sort of play DJ and we all from, you know, a group of people that we know from college get together and 50 of us or something will, you know, dance together in our chairs or whatever it is as we play these music, you know, music from our time from, you know, when we were in college. And that it has been something that's been healing in a different kind of a way than, for example, the racial affinity group and group that they have going on with some of my classmates or things like that, that those are good for left brain didactic understanding and information and knowledge to just sort of, right. you know, have that. But that also this sense of like, okay, well, we're not so isolated and alone, even though we feel that way. It's been a, it's been a way of trying to create some of this that you're talking sure. about in the way yeah. that I could not, I mean, I can't do these other pieces, right? Um, right. But, but, that's, but that, that's healing. And that has nothing to do with me being a, a psychotherapist that has me to do with caring about my colleagues from college and wanting to just offer that and and enjoy that with them and be in it and enjoy and receive as well as the doing. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things, you know, that. When we're talking about healing, I think that, you know, um, some of the work that I've done and and I've looked at, I've looked at a lot of the research um, uh, and I found, and, and it's, it's, it's no surprise to me why humans like to dance. Right. I mean, really. And that all humans have kind of formed different kinds of dance or dance societies and different kinds of dances and so on, and uh, for different reasons have danced even during the plague, right? The, the plague in, in uh, um, the Black Plague that happened in Europe—that's uh, uh, where the Ring Around the Rosie comes from. That kind of dance, right, where Ooh. people were dancing around, you know. Uh, but you know, people have always always done that, you know, when when they're when they're trying to divine, you know, the future or divine what's going to happen next singing and dancing are expressions right and and it's sometimes uh you know whatever whatever helps them with but we know now some of the um, the neuroscience behind that we know that you know when people dance and they sing they have this dramatic rise especially something very meaningful a very meaningful dance sacred dance or whatever it is the meaningful this, this dramatic rise in endocannabinoids in the brain mm. uh, yeah and, and of course what that does is you know blunts pain Increases the feelings of well-being, you know, raises the brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the brain. So you're actually sort of, you know, protecting your brain by, you know, uh, generating more neur- neurons and so on. So yeah. these things are, you know, that were, that are very ancient. Yes. They're such a, they're so healing. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, that's the first thing that kind of went by the wayside when uh, colonialism came, right? It was just the production. It was just work. It was just seriousness. It was a fearful God. You know, it was, it was like uh, fun, play, those kinds of things all went out, the, you know, all were ushered out in terms of, you know, progress and production, which caused, you know, this huge, I think, dramatic change in people's well-being. The rise of yeah. depression, anxiety, those are all novel diseases, by the way, for human beings. Mm. We did not have those. Our, our ancestors, hunter-gatherer ancestors, even our horticultural traditional ancestors, all of us, did not have those levels of depression that we have today. That's pretty clear that, you know, this is something that's novel with us. And we're seeing it, you know, even more accentuated with uh, this COVID-19 that's happening right now. It's like, you know, we're seeing that. People are, people are so, they're so, you know, um, they're so, I think, anxiety-ridden, that they just want to break out of this and send their kids to school and go back to work. So they want to sacrifice, you know, themselves, you know, or, or their kids or their grandparents or whoever. They they, they just don't know. And that's how anxiety ridden I think people are. People say they're anxious. and I'm saying, I think it's anxiety, deep anxiety. That's going to turn into depression here soon. Yeah. Really high levels. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's why we're seeing, I think, you know, especially in the United States, all this behavior that's just you know, outrageous behavior where, where people are taking off their masks and coughing at other people, or they're, you know, pulling out guns on each other. And, 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 and they're trying to, you know, they're sending pe- they're letting people go into these stores or beaches where they're unprotected. And, and with the, you know, there, there's just such resistance to it. But I think that's what's happening. It's more of a psychological, you know, sort of a just mass psychological condition and happening to people, you know, in the States. Every place else too as well, but you know. Right, that. but
0: that there's a different, a different way this sort of rugged individualism philosophy here um, is, is forcing it to play out a little differently. Um, thank you for that, that's really powerful. Um, just a couple more questions, we have about 20 minutes left. Um, maybe this uh, is something to, to sort of tail off of what you were saying earlier. How does trauma and dissociation show up among an indigenous group that white clinicians may not know how to treat? And what should they do differently? I think we kind of answered that, um, but just sort of—is there anything else there about that?
1: No, I think you know. I mean, I think it's really important. Maybe just to go back to the clinician, not think so much about the the person, you know, but to uh, to think about you know what what clinicians need more of, what they need to learn more about. Uh, More spend more time, invest more time in neuroscience. uh, 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 Invest more time in understanding cultural neuroscience and and epigenetics. And then, and then look at things that indigenous people do, uh, and and they their own cultures did that they perhaps have forgotten about. You know how important language is, how important it is to be you know with uh, you know your tribe or your people. People talk about that all the time, my tribe, right? Mm. But it really is, you know, with, with indigenous people, it's not like a made-up tribe. It is a real tribe that's based upon different kinds of uh, social, you know, orders and relationships and that kind of thing, that people have certain obligations to each to each other, right? It's not something you make up, you know. Uh, um, and, and the other thing about it is that, you know, why are these things that, you know, um, that we've done in, in Western healing, you know, why haven't they been successful? I think with, yeah. with particular groups of people. And again, it's the, uh, the understanding and the idea that we did talk about, I think, is collectivism. I really, really think that we just don't have a very, very strong understanding or, or clue about what collectivism is and, and how important it is in the lives of some people, you know,
0: yeah.
1: um, and what it does to people's health when they're, when they're denied humor. Yeah. when they're denied the ability to dance, the ability to, you know, to smile, the ability, you know, all these things have have uh, very, very uh, difficult, you know, um, um, are, are, are very difficult for people. Uh, the other thing I think, you know, therapists, you know, could learn just last thing is is that, you know, there really needs to be a change when you're working with Indigenous people. There are things that, Indigenous people, many indigenous people are people, not only collectivist culture, but they have a genetic variant I talked about before, this 5HTTLPR uh, gene, which is a variant that codes for humor. You know It's kind of the funny bone kind of yeah. call it the funny bone gene.: Yeah, and, 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 and um, they're, they're already primed for that. So when you know it's like bringing them in and talking only about historical trauma and about the pain and racism, you know that's important but, you know, one should never, ever leave someone at that level. There should always be a lot of laughter and humor and the ability to laugh at that situation that's happened so you can, right. you know, conquer it or count, as we say, count coup on that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Have some control over it. Exactly. I laugh at I laugh at the oppression. I laugh at the racism, you know? Not well, that I'm here. Like I series. have
0: agency now, right? Like, that's I'm right. here. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. So I think therapists really have to understand that, you know, it's like, you know, uh, it's not that people, it's not that racism can beat us, but it's that, you know, we, there's a lot, there's a lot of actors and factors that are, that are involved, that are, that are doing it. And a lot of that are factors and actors that are standing by letting it happen to as well.
0: Yeah. 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 A certain level. Like, you know, I take my agency back. I take my power back. I can see it from a distance enough to engage in it to say, yes, this happened. And how am I relating to what happened? And is there an opportunity to use that funny bone humor piece as a way to create enough space and relaxation around it in such That's a right. way that, you know, I don't have to be all jacked up and contracted around it, right? That's right. That it, it doesn't deny the reality of what happened. It doesn't just fixate on it, however. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate that uh, so much. Um, Okay, Um, perhaps this next question is um, from your own experience, and again, like you say, you're not exactly a clinician, but clearly working with people on all different levels over time. Um, Please share some therapy experiences that are healing or have been healing for Indigenous folks and how they may differ from how white clinicians might treat white clients. I think that's sort of saying this question in yet a different way, Um, and maybe you already did sort of explain them in the ways in which you talked about the two case studies with the care, the caring and the way in which the embodiment is the way that I use it. I, I, I talk a lot about embodiment as a somatic psychotherapist and the way in which that keys into the things you were talking about neuroscientifically and also with our limbic system and the insula and things like that around how we are with interrogating our own whiteness, being able to hold both the reality of our own lived limbic experience and our imprinting around our own internal colonization and the more that we're able to be with that, the more we can show up in an embodied way that allows us to be more available in ways that can see and invite in a caring heart, a caring, I don't know what you said, what was it, a care, a care case? No,
1: uh, the care factor. The care, care factor. factor,
0: right. Yeah. And that's an embodiment that emanates from the bottom up from me and isn't a performative way of my doing therapy or being with um, others. I always have said, for example, for me, that um, you had mentioned in the last question uh, response, people have certain obligations to one another in this collectivist (laughs) response, uh, in this collectivist community. And I remember in high school, one of the um, speeches I wrote was about community and what is community. And at the time, I was probably 16 or 17, it was that it was need-based and that it was dependent on one another. The health of the community was essentially like not a tit-for-tat transactional to the T, but whatever it is that i'm offering is something that's needed by someone else which is the glue that is then being offered to someone else that they can receive and that it's interdependent and so that it's it's necessarily need-based and bound in that way like you say you know people have certain obligations to one another and ethically and morally they come forward to do that yeah. so i'm kind of riffing off here on my own experience but i'd like to maybe just come back and say are there any therapeutic experiences that are healing or have been healing for indigenous folks and how may they differ from white clinicians might treat white clients what does a white clinician do with a white client that they wouldn't want to be doing with an indigenous client? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I can share, I just finished a book with a colleague, uh, should be out in October. And, and um, in this particular book, we talk about decolonizing pathways to integrative health is the title of the book. And, um, and, and, and I do, we do some storytelling in there. We're, we're talking a lot about, you know, uh, the literature and, 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 and talking about helping and, and social work and that sort of thing. But but we do some storytelling in there. And one of the stories that I told was, was something that, you know, I still hold dear to me um, was that uh, uh, years ago, my oldest son, my second oldest son, um, he uh, had a horse riding accident. We were out, you know, and, and uh, he was thrown from a horse mm. and, um, um, and he was, he was okay. You know, he was hurt, but he was okay. Uh, and, uh, and I told my father about it. It was in the summertime, we, we had traveled home. I was in, doing my PhD at the time, traveled home. We spent time with my parents, we had horses there. Thrown from a horse and then, uh, so then my father listened to what I told what happened. And then he said, well, you better go see this guy who's, uh, who, uh, who uh, does this ceremony. When someone gets thrown from a horse, he knows he'll know what to do. And uh, I had never heard about that. So then um, um, I called that guy, this elder that night. And this guy was—he's a very, um, very prominent um, um, healer and 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 uh, medicine person, Sundance chief, you know, on our on our reservation, you know. So I, I called him, and he said, "Come over." So I went over the next morning, when my son and I were driving along, and my son says, "Well, what's he going to do?" And I said, "I have no idea. I'm not sure what he's going to do." So we got there, and we we did the the, nor- the normal things we do. I, my son, you know, that was his grandfather, you know, through his mother, um, um, and uh, so he put together, you know, some things. For his grandfather, you know, a package of gifts, which is what we do, right? No, to to get the teaching or whatever it is. You know, we don't give him money, but we give him meaning space. that
0: in a collectivist society such as this, this medicine man that you didn't know was considered a grandfather as an elder. And in order to be able to come and receive the teaching, the and one offers gifts. Is that yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You're considered family, yeah. you're not other. Right
1: well see i knew him but he wasn't related to me he was related to my son but uh, but my son didn't know him very well at the time i understand um, okay yeah so so we got there so we so we get there so i tell him he's coming so we drive early in the morning we get there we get to his place so it's out it's out near the badlands right so it's a beautiful area you know there's on the on the great plains there so we we drive up and he's standing in a circle with all kinds of of sage a sacred circle he's already put and he's he's praying to the north right Mm, so we right. stop and we we wait there like this just wait for him to get done praying but he turns around he, he calls us in. we go and we get into the circle and then he uh he you know lets us in and then he cleanses us off so then he says all these long prayers and 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 so then we 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 stood there right with with him because he was saying it in his language a mandan language so once he finished then we went you know we went out to his house we talked about what had happened and then he brought my son back out into the circle and we told him, you know, he had been thrown from the horse. So then he brushed him off and he did all this healing ceremony. He said all these prayers and he turned to all the sacred directions and did all these things. Right. So it's, it's a long time, right. This is therapy. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, I thought we were done. So I was going to, my son was going to give him the gifts and stuff. And he says, well, now we have to go and we have to go heal the horse, you know, mm. said, the horse has had trauma. So I said, okay, I didn't expect that. So we had to drive all the way around the reservation again and got there, we got to the horse and then we, he did the ceremony around the horse. You know, I got the horse and then the horse was, you know, I I explained, you know, in the story what happened. And then uh, after he did that, I thought we were done. He says, now we need to go and heal the ground this happened on. So, okay. Mm -hmm. So he went to the area and he got to the area and then he started to heal the earth, the trees, all the birds, the grass, talk to all these things, he said, because he said there was a trauma that happened. He said, You always do this thing, you know, because you've got the sacred animal, you've got the sacred child, you've got the sacred place, everything's sacred. He yeah. said, We have to always, when we remember, return we things back to balance, right? That's my responsibility as, as a healer. So we waited there and he did that. And then he's talking to the birds and all those kinds of things that witnessed that. He said, You know, and then he he used the word trauma. He said, you know, we have to help them, you know, get over the trauma they experience. He said, the ground experience, you know, he said it's alive. He said, these things are alive. So we, we did that. We finished up and then uh we got in, we got into uh my 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 truck and we started driving. I started driving him home. It was kind of in the evening. Sun was starting to set in the west, and he he asked me, he said, uh, he asked me if I um my dad told me about the ceremony. I said no. He just told me to see you, and I uh, said oh, okay. And then that was it. That was it. We drove into the night, right? Mm-hmm. But that in itself, you know, it talks about restoration in wow. in in in, in, in uh, trauma, right? You don't. It's not just the individual. Yeah. It's all these things that have been involved, right? So you you have to you have to because uh, in his mind everything is alive everything yeah. is you know
0: yeah animate
1: the sentience to it right mm. so to me that you know that's clinical to me right the clinic is the world man it's not an office man it's, right. it's 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 everything and i think most indigenous people will tell you that and if they do have a sweat lodge clinical ceremony i mean even the sweat lodge is representative of the whole world it's not like my office right And it's got, you know, it's got all the sacred directions and all these live, you know, rocks that are the grandfathers and you've got all this ceremonial stuff happening, you know, remembering that, you know, it's, it's, it's contained. It's like the universe that you're in at that point and you Mm. treat it like that. So that's clinical to me, you know.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, you know, just again, all my relations, North, South, East, West, you know, not getting locked into space time, that it's not linear, you know, that we're here in this full um, animated universe that we're a part of and that we aren't even fixed anyway. And so, you know, I just think the fluidity of that is beautiful. Um, We have about six minutes, seven minutes left. We have one more question. Um, And then, um, will, um, you know, maybe close for this, but it's a gorgeous conversation and I can't thank you enough. Uh, the mainstream narrative about Indigenous peoples, particularly their, their health, often tends to have a deficit focus, which is sort of what you were referencing earlier. What are resilience and strengths-based approaches to Indigenous healing? Which, again, we've already sort of been talking about throughout this conversation. Um, but this idea of moving from pathology to empowerment and, 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 and sort of, you know, joy uh, and this uh, creative spirit, and this—not uh, just me, not this small sense of self, but as my mindfulness teacher Jack Cornfield would say, you know, uh, not not that the, not the contracted sense of self, but this larger being of being one with and a part of, not a part yeah. from.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you know <clears throat> the. Uh, I think for Indigenous people, I think you know it's really, uh, and I can't, of course, speak for everyone, but. I think it's 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 very important. I think to look at, you know, to first ask this question to flip the, flip it flip it around to ask therapists, you know, uh, what do you what do you think of your world? You know, is it working out for you? How's that working out for you? You know, how's it working out to 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 do all this damage to the earth? Right? How's it worked out when when we lose our connection to to you know, to the space and time and to all the natural the things that are natural? How is it when we come to dominate? You know all these forms of life does that work out you know um, and and i think you know most wise people are going to say no it's not we're, we're at a tipping point now you know we're, we're in a, we're in the uh, you know we're at the sixth extinction you know like uh, like uh, like uh you know people are talking about now this this human caused you know uh, uh extinction that's happening of all these species right so it, it's 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 the strength of indigenous people, I think, is to understand that, you know, that, you know, it, it's so important to to be in that place, you know, with, you know, in, where there's order, where, where you have to, there, there's a, some kind of really respectful reciprocity with the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really what it's about. And, and that's what people have fought for for so long. And still are fighting so hard, you know, to to stop pipelines, to stop mining, to stop pollution, to stop throwing plastic in the ocean, you know, to, to, and to uh, you know, uh, stop you know, nuclear, you know, um, arms races and things like that. Indigenous people have been, have been involved in that kind of thing for a long period of time, you know, resisting that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the great strengths of indigenous people is that I think you know, is that we, we have, you know, an understanding, we have that history, we have those narratives, we have that as part of our, 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 uh, our marking on Mother Earth, you know, where, we, where we've, where we've uh, you know, if you go to, let's say, for example, you go to Wyoming, and you go to the Bighorn Mountains, you'll see this huge medicine wheel out there, that's about 10,000 years old, mm. you know, that tribes all over Turtle Island were congregating in this place. They were they were seeing themselves connected to the land, and I think that's one of the things that's made it, made us so resilient. Is that you know we we just haven't given that up, right? And we've and that's a strength to stay connected to that. The strength is 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 you know in in uh, Indigenous people, is understanding. And when we've kind of come some mileage away from that too, because of colonization, we don't live like that anymore because we're forced to live in a very different world. But you know, at that time, at the at the apex of our cultures, that's really what it was: was that you know we were in ceremony so much and so often that we now know from from the studies, you know, that that uh, when you do these brain studies of the parietal lobe in the brain, when the, when the parietal lobe in the brain goes quiet, that you have this transcendent experience where you actually become part of the tree or the earth or the rocks or the, or the waters or the, you know, the Eagle or whatever it is yeah. that people have that ability to silence that part of the brain. When you're into prayer and ceremony for long, long periods of time, that's been shown on, on, uh, you know, brain imaging, you know, when, when, when uh, Tibetan monks who have had 50,000 hours of practice get into this deep meditation, that part of you know, in, in, uh, Franciscan nuns or whoever get into that place, that part of the brain goes quiet. And they experience, you know, like the Buddha did, right? You you see the one drop of ocean, you know, in a, in a drop of water and one drop in a whole ocean kind of thing. So indigenous people around the world and all cultures around the world have been doing that for long periods of time. They begin to lose that connection. So I think that's really a strength of indigenous people is that we've maintained the stories. Some still people still maintain the practices. And as I see it now, you know, even in the social media, I see young indigenous people trying to reclaim that again you know moving towards that continue to move towards that because i think they understand that that's going to be at least in our minds at least one solution to this huge climate change issue we have to deal with i mean racism you know uh, and and you know this brutality we see on the streets and covid 19 you know those are terrible but they pale in comparison to what's coming in terms of this dramatic, dramatic changes that are going to happen to the planet and may, you know, wipe out life as we know it, not just, you know, black lives matter, indigenous lives matter, but it's going to wipe out, you know, we're wiping out all these species, all, you know, that were, that are before us. And we can't even see that. And, and, and so we have to, it's, it's important for us to come back to see what we're doing to one another.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Before we can begin to see what's going, what we're doing to other life outside of that. Yeah. If we can't do that, you know, then, you know, we're, we're a goner as a species. So I think that's, to me, that's really one of the strengths of indigenous people is to have that understanding that, you know, it's still in our stories. It's still in our prayers. It's still in our, our markings that are in Turtle Island. You know, Judacula Rock out in uh, eastern Cherokee, North Carolina, has all of these pictographs in there. Uh, if, you, if you look that up, Judacula Rock mm-hmm. out there that shows that all these tribes on Turtle Island were all coming together at different times, again, to exchange stories, to exchange ceremony, to exchange DNA, to exchange material, to trade, you know, to try to understand the world together. It's not that it was a perfect world, it wasn't, but we can certainly see that, you know, there was some kind of convergence, some moral convergence that we understood that we were not more powerful than the earth, yeah. that we had to live in this kind of place. So I think that's the strength and the moral convergence of indigenous people is that we have still have the respect. Yeah. Right? So.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful, Dr. Yellowbird. I can't say enough, like you said, a respectful reciprocity with the world. And um, also, you know, it's funny when you said the ocean, I, that's the quote from Rumi that I have on my email signature. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And so, you know, again, both of those. I thank you so much for your time. You are always um, a joy to uh, engage with, and I appreciate all of what you've offered here today and uh, continue to offer to all communities. Thank you.
1: I appreciate the, the chance
0: uh, to be on your uh, program and to talk to folks. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much.